before we begin this episode, I just wanted to leave you with a bit of a note for what will actually happen in the next couple of weeks. We'll keep uploading the podcast soon, our semester will come to an end, boarding college will actually have a Thanksgiving break in the next week, but that will not stop us from publishing episodes. Currently I'm a bit sick, but that as well will not stop us from publishing episodes because we actually want to get to people more information and even more inspiration for those days. It's quite sad for everyone. The United States has surpassed a very high level of cases. Romania, my home country as well, has 10,000 cases a day and the situation looks quite dire for everyone. My mom's hospital just closed because of a huge number of COVID and she was diagnosed recently as well as us. So, we're all staying at home. This being said, as the vacation is approaching, that doesn't mean that COVID will just disappear or that all problems of sight will disappear and we'll just be able to lay down, relax, enjoy our lives as everything went back normal. As people love to say, we can go to brunch finally. <laughs> that will not be the case. So, as in the words of the famous Joe Hill, I just want to say don't mourn, organize. And at the same time, when you travel home, if you travel, please be safe and please treat others with respect. Even though you might be quite immune to the virus, remember that it might be passed on to someone that one day might get it and that person could die. And we've seen this year and it's not a very pleasant thing. But to leave you on a more optimistic note, the episode is actually fantastic. Micah and Lydia have done a terrific job at interviewing the person you're just going to hear from who who is a huge source of inspiration. I'm not originally from Maine, I read just a bit of history about Maine and I'm, let's say, a bit accustomed to its politics, but what what Grayson says here is actually beyond inspiration and revealing. It says, I think it reveals a bit the patterns that are keep occurring in Maine and also brings to awareness how we should try to go beyond those and use them at the same time to win and to get more progressive uh, people in power into politics and to pass more progressive reforms. Grayson, congratulations of your win. I think all of us congratulate you and we really appreciate you and all of the other progressive candidates from Maine. And with that being said, I'll let you enjoy this episode. Thank you. And please, be safe. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to Left Porch. This is a podcast from uh, the Bowdoin Labor Alliance, and um, I'm going to be one of your hosts today, Micah Wilson. I'm a student and an organizer at Bowdoin, and my we got a visiting co-host with us because Stock is not feeling well. Um, Livia, do you want to introduce yourself for the class? Hi, my name is Livia, also Bowdoin College student, organizer, and yeah, excited to be here today. Thanks for having me, Micah. Awesome. We're both talking from Portland, Maine, and today we've got um, an awesome guest on the podcast. Um, we've got Grayson Lochner, who is a Lochner. new state rep. Lochner. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, Grayson. Like Lochner. Lochner. Yeah. Lochner. I'm glad. Thank you for correcting me on that. <laughs> um, and so Grayson um, is one of Maine's newest incoming state reps uh, for District 37 in Portland, uh, which includes neighborhoods like Libbytown and Rosemont. And so he just won this seat, um, which had been held for five non-consecutive terms, I believe, by Democrat Richard Farnsworth. Um, and he uh, so Farnsworth decided not to um, re not to run again after you know he's pretty old. Um, and so Grayson won this primary in, in July in a pretty close race and then handily won the general on November 3rd. 
Um, and so, so congrats, Grayson, I guess, first of all, on yeah. that race. Yeah, and so Grayson's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's exciting win. And so Grayson's been a long time community organizer on issues like ranked choice voting. Um, and importantly, uh, on working on the 2016 and 2020 Bernie campaigns, um, which is actually how we met him canvassing for Bernie in Maine and New Hampshire back in the winter. Um, so Grayson, there's a lot we want to talk to you about and questions we want to ask. And hopefully I think we can get the conversation to your perspectives on the local and national elections. But I first think we wanted to hear some of your, your stories, some of your personal story. Um, so what, what were you doing before the Bernie campaign 2016 and how oh did boy. you get into <laughs> politics? Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on the call. Uh, just one thing I want to clarify, uh, Dick Farsworth, who was the, the former representative of my district, termed out. We have term limits in Maine. So you can only serve five consecutive terms. So he, he couldn't gotcha. run again. It wasn't that he decided not to. Um, gotcha. Uh, well, you know, the reason I what, – what was I doing before Bernie got? It seems like an eternity just, you know, when I was canvassing with you all. Like that seems like forever ago. Um, but when I – before Bernie, I was, I was in the uh, mental health field. I was actually – I moved back to, to Maine in 2014 – uh, to, to go to grad school at USM, and I was pursuing a you know, graduate degree in counseling and social work and working particularly with, you know, uh, youth experiencing homelessness and adults experiencing homelessness and, and mental illness and substance use. Um, and that was kind of the, the direction I wanted to go, uh, but I, I got really fed up just in school, uh, just hearing about how you know, we could really help people, but there's never money to help people. And um, so I, I, you know, this was like 2014, too, when I first moved back to Maine. And that was the year that our illustrious governor, uh, who called himself Trump before Trump was Trump, uh, white nationalist Paul Page. Uh, that's when he was running for re-election. And I, I just thought, you know, I had to do everything in my power to defeat him. So I just started canvassing part time. Unfortunately, that race wasn't successful, but, you know, we <clears throat> I did get plugged in with a lot of other people who were, you know, working in progressive politics. The, the next year we passed a referendum to strengthen Maine's clean election law. Uh, so I was really proud to run as a uh, Maine clean elections publicly financed candidate. And I worked on that campaign to strengthen that law in 2015. And through that, I got plugged in with a number of people working on Bernie in 2016 um, in New Hampshire. And I've, I've been following Bernie since like 2010 when I heard him on C-SPAN or something giving a, a interview about his book that he had just written. That was the transcript of this filibuster speech when he does one man filibuster uh, to I don't, I don't know how much history you want here. But well, so I got we'll plugged in in New Hampshire and I, I didn't think Bernie, honestly, like when I took the job, I love Bernie, but I didn't think uh, he stood a chance. That's not what I said at the job interview. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know when we uh, start when we started, you know, we won New Hampshire obviously, and you know it turned in. I thought what was going to be a six week gig turned into six months, and I got hired on a number of other campaigns. Uh, went overseas, worked for different you know social democratic parties in the in the in Europe, um, and then returned to U.S. and and you know, helped on things like RCV, again ranked choice voting. And it's been it's been a hell of a journey. So when I decided to run, I was like, you know what, Maine House districts 
are super small. One person can really go out there and talk to everybody in that community. So that's like what I originally intended to do. That was before COVID. Um, but you know, it ended up working out. I just made a ton of phone calls and texted people and had volunteers helping me. And, you know, we ended up pulling it off in the primary. I won by 82 votes. So here I am. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and just the fact that you won by 82 votes shows, you know, how important it is just to have those conversations with every single voter. So, um, and we know no one hustles like you, Grayson. So we trust that you uh, put in the work to, to really yeah. talk to everyone. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm still exhausted from the July primary to tell you the truth. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> So I guess we're just curious, you know, what was it like working on the Bernie campaign? We obviously had the pleasure of working with you. And how did that shape your perspective on American politics um, and the fact of just having every day run for office? I think that's been um, for us one of the greatest things that have come out of the Bernie campaign is candidates from the most local level to the national level. Um, we're just kind of everyday people who get up and say that they can they can make a difference. And we see that with your campaign, with Jamal Bowman, AOC so many politicians like that. Right. Yeah, it was, you know, so Bernie's whole thing in the 2016 campaign uh, that didn't really get as much air in the 2020 campaign because, you know, well, like a lot of Bernie's issues, like everything, you know, in, in the Democratic primary, it just became about defeating Trump and, you know, a lot of the other underlying issues that created Trump allowed for Trump to get elected. It didn't, you know, get as much airtime as they should have. But one of Bernie's big things in 2016 was, you know, we need a, a political revolution from the bottom on up. And Bernie inspired me because I'd really kind of given up on politics or grassroots electoral politics, uh, that democracy was actually representative at all. Uh, that, you know, like you said, regular everyday working people can get elected to office and bring forward issues that are going to help, um, you know, workers. Uh, so when, when Bern, you know, I think what really inspired me was just seeing the scale. Okay. First of all, like working on a presidential campaign and understanding, you know, just the sheer number of people that you have to get out there and talk to. Like, I think that's just like the fundamental thing. If you're ever running for office, you have to talk to people. You have to, you know, and we've seen this a lot. I think we'll touch on this in, in local and national issues where, you know, progressive candidates don't necessarily win, but progressive issues do. And I think what progressive candidates have to do, that's, you know, you have to get out there and introduce yourself to people because so often people are really voting for you. They're not necessarily voting for the issues that you stand for. And I wish I knew a better way to address that because it should be about issues. It shouldn't be about personality. Um, but really, you know, in my case, I think, you know, people just saw like a younger person who had different ideas and, you know, the, and I introduced myself, I was able to like have connections with people just like during the, the pandemic. And that's what it's about is just having conversations, introducing yourself. Uh, you'll win a lot of people over that way. If, if you're like asserting yourself as a candidate, um, and, and you're taking the time to have conversations with people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, and a little thing like a state house race, like, you know, one candidate can really do that. Uh, obviously it gets a lot harder at scale. Uh, you know, like a presidential race, we're doing it state by state by state. And you have to talk to hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but, you know, really just seeing the scale of like a presidential race and then kind of 
you know, bringing that back to Maine and seeing how small a state house race was, I was like, you know what, I could do this. You could do this. Anybody who's motivated can do it. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And here I am. That's awesome. And can you yeah. tell us a little bit when you're having these conversations, both for your own candidacy, for issues like ranked choice voting or for Bernie, how do you try to connect with people and especially connect across difference? I know that we all had the experience of knocking on doors in New Hampshire and Sometimes we were talking to Trump supporters, a lot of different people, but that didn't stop us from having a conversation and trying to explain why we felt Bernie was the best choice. Yeah. Um, so I think when it, politics is interesting, you know, if you're going out there as a human being and you're not going out there, you know, with the idea that you're going to agree with everybody, you know, in a democracy, sadly, you know, not everybody's always going to agree. And, you know, we, we live in a time where, you know, people disagree on some like really fundamental things, which is really awful, you know, like, and I don't think people would necessarily see themselves as disagreeing on like, you know, the, you know, the, the truth, like, you know, where, which even like that's become controversial, but, you know, like is science real, like empirical science, is that something that's real? Like, you know, people, that falls into like, you know, a political issue when it shouldn't be. It's, it's really just an issue of like science and empirical empiricism. And do people believe that or do they believe in sort of their own, you know, culture and ego and whatever Fox News is telling them? So there's that. And there's also like, you know, are people of color, do they deserve human rights? You know, like that sort of thing. And I don't think like, you know, Trump supporters necessarily see themselves as like supporters of denying people of color their basic rights, even though, you know, if, if you're educated and you kind of see Trump for what he is, like, you know, he's a white supremacist, you know, he's a white nationalist and you know, he stands for, you know, taking basic human rights away from people of color and different you know, communities and, and women and LGBTQ people. Um, so, but even though Trump supporters don't necessarily see themselves, if it, like they don't see the act or the opinion of supporting Trump as in support of all those other things that, you know, we find so reprehensible and rightly so. But, you know, when you get out there as a human being and you're leading with, you know, I'm a human being, you're a human being, let's have a conversation. Um, you, you know, people, especially if you're the candidate, you know, they see that and you're like, wow, they're, they're like, you know, you really took the time to come out here and talk to me. And that really means a lot. Like your time means something, you know, like these conversations mean something. People recognize that not everybody, you know, but a lot of people recognize that, you know, you're taking time out of your day to have a conversation with them about something that you care about. And just the like that in and of itself takes, you know, that sends a really strong message. Um, it's harder in times of COVID. And I think this, you know, ties into a lot of why national Democrats and, and a lot of Democrats in Maine too, like, you know, really fell short of what the expectations were um, because we couldn't go out and have those conversations. You can't show up in person, um, you know, and it's just phones, it's just texts. And there's not that level of connection, you know, where, where it humanizes it. You know, if you're showing up at somebody's door, talking to them one-on-one it humanizes the interaction it's like oh this isn't about some you know national narrative this is just about two people having a conversation and uh you know that takes a lot of the um 
you know, national negativity and, and conflict out of the situation. Not always, you know, you'll knock on a door and somebody will have a Confederate flag hanging up and it's like, you know, okay, I'm going to skip this house because I'm going to fight this person if I stay here too long. Um, you know, so like, obviously there, there are some exceptions, but by and large, you know, you knock on a Trump supporter's door, like some, you're just your average, one of those 70 million people in this country who voted for Trump, you know, most of them, you knock on their door, they're not going to like, you know, break out the shotgun and, you know, chase you off their porch. They'll, at least like listen to what you have to say and see you as a human being, you know, uh, right. and I think that's like a lot of what this country needs. Um, you know, especially, you know, social media and people get locked into their filter bubbles and they're not talking to each other. And I just don't know how in a, a democracy succeeds if you can't have a dialogue, like that's really what it's about. It sounds cliche and you won't win people over a hundred percent of the time, but, I think, um, you know, at least it humanizes it and it kind of takes all this dehumanizing, really troublesome uh, language and narrative out of the out of the equation. Um, so so it, it does work. And that's what, you know, Bernie inspired me to have those conversations. And it convinced me that it, that it works if you go out there with kind of that attitude that it's it's about people. It's not about partisanship. Totally. No, I think, I think it's, I think it's so true. And I know one thing, Grayson, that you did especially run on, if we're going to sort of talk about the issues, um, was the housing crisis in Portland and yeah. housing affordability. And so what, what was one of the ways in which you were able to sort of bridge that divide you're talking about between the personality politics and the politics and the policy itself? And what did that look like in Portland? Right. Well, yeah, that's interesting. So I, there has been even prior to COVID and especially now with this looming evictions thing, you know, and like the CDC kicked the can down the road a couple months, but we do have, you know, we're looking at just massive displacement and homelessness and evictions in the middle of the winter. And it's not going to be pretty in, you know, Maine and across the country. And it is really desperate, but you know, Maine also before COVID had a housing crisis, a very acute housing crisis and Portland was among, you know, the least affordable or Maine in general, least affordable state in the country. One of them in which to rent when you compared wages to rents And Portland was routinely among the cities with the fastest increasing rents in the entire country, um, you know, leading to homelessness and displacement. So and it had been going on for years, you know, over a decade, like this, this dynamic and this, you know, kind of hyper gentrification had been happening. And the city council just like didn't do anything. So really when I ran, you know, I distilled it down. It was just, and this wasn't something I came up with, but through, you know, organizing with, with DSA and different, um, you know, organizations that, that focus on housing, it's, it's not that hard. And it's, you know, what I led with was housing is a human right. That's pretty much it. Most people don't disagree with that. Um, and you know, some people right. are kind of like, well, what do you actually mean by that? And then I go in and I tell them, you know, we need to invest more in public housing. We need to have better regulations to protect tenants, things of that nature, if, if they wanted to dive into it. But, you know, I think one of the things that like progressives have to do better as well is just lead with values because that, that kind of 
harkens back to um, how, like sadly and unfortunately, like a lot of um, people aren't voting based on like issues and interests. They're voting based on personality and identity and things of that nature. And I think you know Trump really capitalizes on that. I'm not saying we should be more like Trump, but I'm saying you know we should lead with values, you know, like what do we actually care about? So when you say something like housing is a human right, that's a value statement, you know? Um, so, and I would lead with that. And from there, you know, it's like, well, you have an area of agreement because most people do agree that housing is a human right. Um, so that's, you know, when I would text people or just call them, I'd get them on the phone. That was my very basic pitch. You know, I'm running because I believe that housing is a human right especially during a pandemic. Um, and, you know, that resonated. I think it was just, you know, it is such Definitely. a huge issue and it continues to be. Um, but yeah, that was Definitely. Like, and like the thing that I you know, ran on. Yeah. And I, and I think it speaks also to what we found ultimately to be the results of some of the more local ballot initiatives in Portland. Um, and we can get into them a little more, but I think, there's this real distance between what where the council stood, where the mayor stood, um, almost almost unanimously, with the exception um, of maybe one city councilor, um, against sort of the will of the people in terms of buying into these issues and buying into these values you're talking about, like believing that housing is a human right. Um, right. So, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what? People First Portland was doing, what the wins were, and sort of what they mean looking at Portland as moving forward. Yeah, like, so People First Portland was a project of DSA, um, and they saw the pandemic, and I thought, you know, honestly, when they brought this forward, I was like, this is super ambitious, you know, obviously I'm 100% in favor of all these issues. Uh, you know, Portland, we had tried to do by referendum a couple years previously, uh, the rent stabilization thing, and it, and it got beaten badly based on a lot, you know, in large part due to uh, out-of-state developers coming in and spending tens of thousands of dollars to defeat it. Um, so when, you know, they kind of came to me and I ended up collecting a lot of signatures and I was helping a lot with people first Portland, um, they, uh, I was like, this is a lot. I didn't think we would get the signatures to get on the ballot because that was, you know, back in May and June and people were, you know, very much obeying the lockdown, social distancing kind of stuff that was more, you know, not that it should, it definitely should be in place now, but people were, I think were taking the pandemic more seriously then. So I thought we were going to have a hard time getting these issues on the ballot. Um, but we did, and um, and then, yeah, along comes, you know, these national organizations, uh, developers spending hundreds of thousands, you know, I don't know, yeah, it came to close to a yeah. million dollars for a city of Portland, which is, yeah. you know, not a right. big city, uh, 65000 you know, just in, in the municipality of Portland, you know, so that's a lot of money per vote <laughs> they were spending. Um, yeah. And I saw that you guys were outspent 30 to one. Yep. Yep. And yeah, people for Portland raised and spent something like 30,000, you know, compared to their right. close to a million. Um, and I think wow. really what it says is that, you know, people were fed up 
and sick and tired of like this homelessness crisis and this affordable housing crisis and this gentrification crisis um, that, you know, the city council would just, they come up with these ideas and just nothing ever gets done. You know, they picking around the edges, doing things like, you know, which things are a good idea. Like inclusionary zoning is a good idea. Passing more affordable right. or excuse me, accessory dwelling units like, like that, like it's a good idea, but it's not going to get at the heart of the problem uh, when you have skyrocketing rents um, yeah. in, in large part, I think, to, you know, people choosing to, or landlords choosing to put their rentals on Airbnb as opposed to rent it out to workers. Um, so, you know, I think it was hopeful that people in Portland, like, okay, yeah, housing is a human right. It's not a market commodity to be bought and sold at a profit. Like, that's not the point of housing. The point of housing is to have a place to live and to have a community. And like, that's, you know, it's kind of physically what ties communities together. And it's like, you know, so much of what Portland is, is the people in Portland and, and, um, you know, you want to preserve communities and, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that people shouldn't be, you know, and I think we actually saw this, like, I think like a week after the election results, it was like, you know, affordable housing developers are going to be building more in Portland, regardless of these me- measures, uh, which was like their whole argument. It's like, oh, this is going to keep affordable housing developers out of Portland. It's like, no, it's not. People are going to move to Portland. It's a great place to live. You know, and we want people who, who make it a great place to live to stay here. Um, right. So, you know, it was really exactly. helpful, I think, that, you know, people are, are starting to recognize that and see that, you know, rents are, are outrageous and you shouldn't have to pay 50, 60 percent of your income just to keep a roof over your head. And do you have a sense of what's going to happen? I know that. Uh, we voted to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and $18 an hour during this time of emergency. And the city council has decided to block this with the help of their lawyer. Do you have any sense of what the fight on this looks like moving forward? I don't, I really, um, you know, I think a lot of employers are going to obey the ordinance at like 18 bucks um, for time and a half. uh, Cause right now the city minimum wage is 12. And what this, you know, the, the emergency provision is that, you know, you get hazard paid during a state of emergency. Makes total sense to me. So you get time and a half. So that's 18 if you're working at 12. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't, the businesses love to just cry and moan and they say they're going to go out of business. And it's just not the case. Like they will find ways to, um, to survive, you know, if, if you're a business owner in Portland and you're, you know, making 150k a year, you know, maybe you could do with making 125k a year. Like, is that so hard? Or I, I think a lot of it is what that's coming down to. And you know, sometimes they're making more than that, uh, and much, much more. Um, I think, uh, you know, so I I hear where the city is coming from as far as their own workers and like they've already had to make cuts uh, because of like the lack of funding coming from the federal government. Um, but I, I think the city will find ways to accommodate th- these raises. Like people, city employees shouldn't be making under that anyway. 
Um, you know, and it's just like if you're working for a municipality, especially one like Portland, you know, you deserve a living wage. And if you're risking your health and safety every day to go perform an essential job, yeah, like you deserve, you know, you deserve more than a living wage. You should be compensated adequately for that. So, uh, but you know, in, in, I was listening to NPR and they find just the, the most extreme cases where, you know, they were interviewing a, you know, like a daycare facility um, that's like, well, we're not going to be able to provide for our workers. So like, you know, we're going to have to raise tuitions. Like it's insane, A, that you're paying tuition to send your kid to daycare. You know, we should have universal pre-K. That's something I'd like to see the state of Maine do. Um, yeah. You know, it's just like, what the hell kind of country is this? And, you know, sadly, the city is, you know, we're, we're in this context of a, you know, neoliberal capitalistic society that doesn't have a, a very strong public sphere. But where, where does that start if not at the local level? So, you know, Portland, we're going to blaze a trail. There might be some some growing pains, but I, I have every faith that we will, you know, this is good for the city. Like people are going to get paid more. There's going to be more affordable housing, um, more better, like, uh, green building standards. I don't see any downsides. Um, developers will cry. Some small business owners will cry. But in the end, I think we'll figure it out. we just want to say thank you and that we recommend you take a little break stretch out a bit you know lift yourself up from the chair or if you're driving you know and you've been driving for a very long time just you know pull to the side and just relax for a bit we just wanted to put a bit of a shameless plug in here and say that a lot of the topics uh, Grayson has addressed here with Micah and Livia are also present in another episode we've done together with, with Micah, Livia and Nathan which is about post-election and what it means and what got Trump elected into the White House and what has led to this proliferation of Trumpist policies and Trumpist way of talking. So if you actually want to listen to that, please check it out. You can find it on all the podcast platforms. And if you actually like this podcast or you would like to be a bit critical about it or you'd just like someone in your family to listen to it and get quite angry because we're talking about progressive stuff, just send it over to them. And also ask them to leave us a review, please. It will benefit us so much. And it means so much to us when, at the end of the day, we just open the podcast hosting app and we see how many listens we have. They're not a lot. They're just, they're quite, they're enough for the moment. But we really want to grow this. So with your help, please, please try to support us as much as you can. We're not asking for money. We're just asking for a share and a like. It's free. And if you want, you can change your mind later about it. Awesome. Yeah, I think I'm I'm feeling really hopeful about the work that People First Portland did. It's just another example that shows the power of canvassing against, you know, big funding and how much those conversations work and how there, there's a lot of will for progressive agendas in the United States. And I think we saw that all across the country on election night, even if the Democrats did have some big losses.
Right. Um, and I think on that note, we want to shift a little bit to talking about what happened at no- November 3rd on um, an electoral or on a Senate and presidential level. I think first, just thinking about the Senate race, people really expected Sarah Gideon to pull through in Maine. Um, and so what is your assessment of that race and why do you think that she wasn't able to prevail? Yeah, it's it was really disappointing. A, um, and there are a few things that tie in nationally and, you know, so I think a lot of Democrats and potential volunteers and stuff just probably got complacent looking at the polls that showed like Gideon ahead, you know, when even, at the, you know, they showed her ahead seven points, she ended up losing seven points. I think, you know, that's a whole conversation to have about the accuracy of polling. Yeah. Um, so I think that played into it, but, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Gideon was definitely much more of a centrist establishment politician uh, versus, you know, progressive like Betsy Sweet or Brie Kidman, who would also run in the Democratic primary, or Lisa Savage, who is running as a Green Party candidate or, or well, technically unenrolled, but um, in, you know, very much running on a progressive agenda uh, and keeping ranked choice voting first and foremost, which I thought was awesome. Um, and she didn't get a whole lot of support, you know, like, even, you know, so between Lisa Savage and Sarah Gideon, uh, they didn't break 50%, you know, Collins broke a, a majority outright. So it didn't have to go to ranked choice voting, I think is really sad. What I honestly think my assessment of what happened um, in, in that particular race Susan Collins has a lot of support and a lot of people may just identify with her as this like kind of moderate, no nonsense conservative, right? Like this old school Republican from Arusta County, you know, in, in all of her ads, it's like, you know, her family has been in Arusta County since, you know, 18, whatever. And it was about identity. You know, Susan yeah. Collins appeals to identity as much, you know, maybe in a different way, maybe not as like kind of viciously as Trump does, but you know, Susan Collins, she's an identity candidate as much as um, anything. You know, I don't see what her real policies are, but in what she hit Gideon on, which repeatedly, I mean, this happens in Maine. There's a real strong and disconcerting nativism in Maine. Um, and I say that having grown up here, uh, that it's just, it's hard to really break that. Like people in Maine are very, you know, we kind of, you know, we're up here in the Northeast. We're a little bit isolated. We're the only state that only borders one other state. We're surrounded by Canada and the ocean. And it's kind of, it's a very provincial place. Um, and we have that, I, there's that identity. Like there's a Mainer identity. And, you know, God forbid, Sarah Gideon, God forbid, she's from Rhode Island, right? Like, oh, my God, like two states away, another small rural coastal state, um, you know, like in New England. Like, uh, But Susan Collins hit her on that because, like, that's what she appeals to is just this, like, this manor identity. And uh, it's, it's troubling, you know, and I think that's pretty closely related to white nationalism. And that's why... Yeah. Trump won in the second district too. That's why, um, you know, it's it's really hard to to run candidates who 
you know, for statewide office and being who aren't from here, just because that's such like a thing here. And I don't know how you break that. I think it'll change over time because we need people moving here. We need new energy and, and culture and, you know, you go, but you go out to like rural parts of the state. It's just like, all they care about is that, you know, you're from Maine. Yeah. Like, right. And so yeah. that, that's and kind of my take on why Gideon fell short. It, it was much more about nativism than anything than her, even her ideology. Like, obviously I would have liked to see her be more progressive and stand for things that I care about. But really, I think it boils down to like nativism. Right. And I think you're, you're speaking to this sort of double standard of identity politics being lauded on both sides, um, but also this sort of double standard in terms of money. I mean, I think I, I did some last minute canvassing sort of in like areas like North Falmouth and Cumberland. And, mm. you know, even there, which is more sort of sub- suburban and getting towards um, like more rural areas people really were talking about like how much they hated to see the money sort of the outside money coming into this race. And, um, you know, which I I think is a valid critique and I would hold it on certain candidates myself, but it's kind of also was true in the case of Collins who had money coming from FedEx and UPS and all, you know, so it's hard. And we have to, as you say, like be sure to critique and, 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 and criticize the nativism and, the tendencies towards white supremacy that we're seeing, um, but also see maybe the downfalls on the policy side. Um, And, and um, yeah. And I'm wondering if you think sort of in the future that places like people who are running on more progressive tickets, ticket items like Medicare for all, or like a green new deal um, would have a better stand uh, in the whole sort of Senate race. Um, Cause I know there were a couple counties like up North, there was an, and New York times covered, um, a, a story, uh, sort of north northwest of, of 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 Lewiston, and they were talking about how it's a historically Democratic district where um, Susan Collins ended up doing a ton better than Gideon, um, but actually Joe Biden took that area, and and even um, sort of the more left leaning state reps in that uh, area took it, like running on Medicare for all, like Jared Golden, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm curious if you think policy has a chance in the future to sort of take it, or do you think that nativism is really depleting and debilitating? Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, like I, I am want to see candidates running on more progressive issues. There, there are a couple things here. So I think, yeah, the money and politics thing, that's huge. Right. And like people in Maine hate money and politics and they swear up and down. They, you know, that, like, and actually, so Betsy Sweet, when she ran for governor in 2018, she ran publicly financed. And so she had a much better platform to kind of say, you know what, I'm the, you know, get money out of politics candidate. And she was like, I'm the only one who kind of walks the talk here. And unfortunately, we don't have public financing for federal races. So she couldn't run publicly financed this time around. Sarah Gideon could say, I'm for overturning Citizens United. She could say that over and over and over again. But, you know, when it came down to it, yeah, she's taking PAC money, you know? And um, so I think that really, you know, if you're going to be a candidate that's running as a get money out of politics candidate, you better actually be a get money out of politics candidate. Like that speaks so much louder than um, what you're working. You know, it's like actions speak louder than words. So 
you know, if you're going to be saying, I want to overturn Citizens United, you better be rejecting corporate PAC money. So I think that hurts Sarah Gideon. Um, Jared Golden, <laughs> right? Like, I support him, but if you listen to what, like, Golden kind of talks about in the debates and stuff, he's super, like, he does not run, he does not sound like a progressive when, when you hear him talk. He is very mm-hmm. moderate and very much about tiptoeing around Trump. And that's what you have to do, apparently, in, in District 2, even though, like, it used to be a very Democratic district. Like, we had Mike Mishu, uh union right. leader who was the, the uh, Congress person from CD2 for 20 years until he ran against Paula Page in 2014 and lost, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of what that has to do, like, so Democrats were stronger in District 2 20, 30 years ago when a lot of this has to do with like the paper industry and the you know timber industry and there were strong unions in district two and people were you know there were good jobs and strong unions and in blue collar jobs right and that's just kind of part of the whole like neoliberal course of america over the last like 30 40 years or so that those jobs have been you know offshored and um People, in, instead of blaming, uh, you know, the the capitalists, you know, the, the owners of these paper companies and, and these timber companies that decide that they're going to move jobs offshore instead of blaming them, you know, like what Republicans do is they blame Democrats, you know, they blame these regulations, they blame the unions, and ultimately they end up finding scapegoats like immigrants and, you know, uh, people of color to blame uh, for the failures of, you know, the, the business owners. So um, I think 20, yeah. 30 years ago, when these places that were democratic strongholds were democratic strongholds, it was because of the unions and the jobs. And now that that's gone, they are uh, really kind of easy prey for Republicans and their scapegoating, which is what they do all the right. time. Uh, they exploit these you know, valid fears, these valid economic fears that people have, like they see their communities disintegrating around them. They see that it's like, you know, like, okay, I can, what are my job, what are my job opportunities? Like I can go work for 12 bucks at the subway. I can, you know, get on social security disability and get 650 bucks a month or whatever. But what the hell other economic opportunities do I have in this community that I live in now, you know, or was born here and, and they don't have any opportunities. So like the people with the means of leaving do, and um, the people who are stuck there just kind of end up feeling very, you know, left out of the picture, which I mean, honestly they are, but the, the problem is not like somebody like Trump comes along and says, you know, blame the people who have less power than you blame the immigrants. Those are the, you know, and it's not that scapegoating is just so effective for Republicans and it's really desperate and and Democrats uh, and progressives. Well, I think progressives, you know, so like, you know, Bernie can come along and say like Democrats. Yeah, you're right. Like, so Democrats are too damn afraid of blaming the donor class, you know, like let's focus on the donors. Like let's focus on the business owners who are offshoring jobs. Um, 
So that's like what Bernie does because he doesn't accept money, you know, or what a progressive should be able to do. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully that, you know, people will resonate with that over the, the message of, you know, blame the, the minorities, blame the scapegoats. Um, but so far it's been, it's been really hard to push that narrative. Um, but yeah, I mean, Definitely. Yeah, that's what I would like to see. Definitely. And I, and I think it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a really challenging thing to approach. And so sort of, for, sort of from the left in terms of strategy, it brings up a, a question that we've seen in other places on the national level. I think Pennsylvania is one um, in which there's sort of a similar trend that we've seen uh, as to certain rural, rural places in Maine where industrial jobs have gone. Um, and there's this one controversy I've been seeing floating kind of in the news recently um, where Connor Lamb from, uh, who's a sort of house centrist Democrat uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, you know, was criticized by folks on the left like AOC for having not put enough money or really done the sort of deep organizing necessary to win in those sort of swing districts. Um, And Lamb has been known to say that, he thinks that it's the left flank of the party for running on issues like defunding the police and running on issues like Medicare for all and a green new deal that are actually costing him the race. Um, and that he thinks, you know, the democratic party needs to be more unified and, uh, otherwise he, they won't be able to win sort of those swing seats like his in places like Pennsylvania. Um, so I guess what is your response to, that kind of strain of thought from centrist Democrats right now right. who are actually telling those on the left to sort of quiet down and let's wait until we get power until we, uh, and then do more things. What, what, sure. what do you say to folks well, like that? Yeah, I do reject the notion that it's the left that is harming the center. And that's why Democrats underperform. I think that's, that's a load of, sh- of shit. Um, you can include that in the podcast. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, and, and I actually, I do think this is a good moment to talk about ranked choice voting and to talk about like, you know, how we like the democratic party, you know, in any other country, you go to Europe, it'd be two or three different parties, like liberals and social Democrats are two different parties. You go to Europe, like, you know, you go to the UK labor party is not the liberal democratic party. They're two different parties. You go to Sweden and the social Democrats and the left party are not in the coalition with the liberals. The liberals often go and co- into coalitions with conservatives because, you know, it's a free market liberal ideology. Like, yeah, human beings have rights. Immigrants have rights. But ultimately, like, let's leave it up to the market. That's what like a, a European liberal is. So I think this is a good opportunity to talk about ranked choice voting and other systems of voting that would allow us to have a multi-party system. That's the, that's the future. If we're going to save democracy, like I'm, you know, we need more than two parties uh, competing nationally. Like I'm a Democrat, but you know, I'm in some, because I believe in democracy and I think the best way to have a strong democracy is to have more than two parties. So there's that. Um, and when it comes to, you know, this, the left and the center and who's harming who, like, the problem is, and I agree 100% with AOC, that Democrats did not do enough this election to go out there and have those tough conversations. Like, And I think a lot of it was out of regard and respect for the pandemic. 
Like, I don't think there was any of, I don't think it was like necessarily that Connor Lamb's field director was like, or Connor Lamb didn't hire a field director. Or Connor Lamb was like, oh, we're not, we're just not going to do field because I've got this in the bag. And like, you know, um, I don't think that was the case. I think it was more the case that, you know, Democrats are taking the pandemic seriously, don't want to go door to door, show up in person. Um, so that really hurt Democrats, you know, like a good field program where you have like strong, competent, trained volunteers going out hitting doors. You can increase your vote share five or 10 percent. That's like what Democrats have to do. You have to go talk to people and humanize these issues. Like because I think for a lot of rural voters, you're talking about, you know, when you talk about Black Lives Matter, they hear something other than what you're saying, you're saying black lives matter. You're saying the lives of African-Americans and people of color matter. That's all you're saying. But what they hear is what they're hearing on Fox news, which is, you know, anarchy and violence. And, um, so if you're going to overcome that, you have to humanize these conversations. You have to go out there and talk to people. And that's what Democrats were unable to do out of regard for human life. So the pandemic, I think, really hurt us. Um, and also, there's this other troubling trend. Uh, if you spend a lot of time in what I, what I think is also responsible for why the polls were so off, where people just aren't answering their phones anymore for a number of reasons, you know, call spoofing and uh, just different tools that, like, you know, Google, like, I screen my calls now. When people call me, you have, like, the Google screening service. So people just aren't answering their phones anymore, um, and that it makes it really hard to reach people. If you can't have a conversation, I don't know how you can convince people of, of your, you know, way of thinking. So that it was a huge challenge. The pandemic, I think, really hurt Democrats. You know, uh, also one of the things that AOC was talking about in that <laughs> New York Times interview was that like Connor Lamb didn't spend money on digital. If that's the case, like, yeah, that was just really effing dumb. Like, if, if he wasn't investing in digital in the time of a pandemic when so many people are online, then that's just a huge, huge um, oversight that probably cost him the election. So right. there are a few things at play here. Um, but, yeah, just like I, I pretty much reject the idea that it's about Democrats being too far left because actually like Jared Golden's a good example of that because you know he almost actively campaigns against Nancy Pelosi because like the Republicans up there are like oh he's just gonna be a foot soldier for Nancy Pelosi and, and then like Golden's like well no actually I am you know not like I, I'm not a supporter of Nancy Pelosi so I think it's possible for Democrats locally to separate themselves if they are in a district where um you know, it's it's hard to convince people that, you know, redirecting funding from, you know, punitive policing and prisons to things like housing and education and jobs, if, if that's a hard argument to make in a community, um, you know, you can campaign and say, no, look, I'm a supporter of police, like, you know, like which sucks. Uh, police are very popular, sadly. Um, you know, if you look at like Chloe Maxman, it's pretty great. Like, you know, she, she's a progressive, but she just won a Senate race, you know, in a pretty, pretty conservative district in Maine. And she had like, 
you know, the sheriff of Lincoln County endorsed her and shit like that. So, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. (laughs) She's, she's, I'm, I'm, we're big fans of her. She's doing awesome work and I think shows that progressive policies, um, really do have success in Maine. Right. Two more questions for you before we finish up. Okay. One is, you know, we all endured the very tragic Bernie loss together and, there was a moment, you know, around Iowa, around New Hampshire, where we thought that maybe the Democratic Party could really provide a route for progressive politics at the national level in the United States. There was a moment where it seemed like Bernie would prevail. And then obviously we all, you know, shared in that crushing defeat. And so my question is, where, where do you see the future of the progressive left on the national level? And I think what I hear you saying is it's about passing ranked choice voting and it's about perhaps building a new party. Is that where you're at right now? I think long-term that's inevitable. Um, you know, I don't know without ranked choice voting. I think it's, I think that has to come first. Like you have to have electoral reform first before you start building a party. Otherwise you'll just throw out the baby with the bathwater and you'll have a one party Republican state, like in a lot of States around the country where they just gerrymander and redistrict and kind of rig their way into power and maintain that power. Um, so I, I think RCV has to come first, but I think a, you know, a third party situation is inevitable at some point. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think, you know, things like RCV and, uh, you know, I mean, you can't, you can build the left within the party in the meantime, you know, you can't, you can do, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, Right, but we but, see that always has its limitations if the if the does. DNC is going to continue to alienate the progressive left. It does. And I guess yeah. our last question before we finish up is, we know we're all living in dark times. The police are murdering black people. We're facing a climate crisis. We're in the midst of a pandemic, and capitalism seems to be hanging on. Um, mm-hmm. So in the midst of these dark times, what is giving you hope, Grayson, to keep on going? You know, I think, so science... Right. Like, I mean, I think like people look at science and say, like, you know, this is I, I think there's a lot of hope for a vaccine. I think, uh, you know, science is going to show that well, it already is showing that, you know, capitalism in its current form, like exploiting the, the earth and its uh, people is unsustainable. You know, by definition of it being unsustainable, it won't last like something is going to have to give. And whether it's going to, you know, be like a mass extinction situation or like, you know, we can solve this through, you know, I mean, that's ultimately what gives me hope is like beyond any kind of like here and now, like scale, um, like eventually, eventually this system is, is going to change, um, but I think, you know, Bernie inspired me and gave me hope that Democrat, like democracy can work if people give a shit enough. You know, if you get out there in your community and you're having these conversations, you can convince people of your way of thinking. And even if like you're not, they're not with you 100% on every issue, they get to know you, they trust you, and they're like, you know what, this person deserves my vote. Um you know, our democracy is not perfect and there are, I mean, it's far from it and a lot needs to change. Um, but I, I see change happening. Um, you know, and, and I am worried about the climate crisis. I'm worried about sea level rise. I already see it like, you know, towns where I grew up where like, 
you know, the coast is eroding and like the seas, the tides are coming up higher and more frequently. And it's like sea level rises here. The climate crisis is here. Um, and you just hope people wake up. Um, but what gives me hope is that like, you know, human beings have been through some shit before and we'll get through some shit again. Um, and hopefully we'll come out better for it. Sounds good. Well, we so appreciate you being on today and all of your hard work for fighting for progressive politics in Maine. And we wish you best of luck as a state representative. Cool. I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Grayson. It's all dirty. All right. Take care.